Good morning, church. Good morning. I appreciated uh, Nate's sermon last week. Uh, I appreciated him highlighting for us in Psalm 21 um, how God has blessed us and how he seeks to bless us and how he protects us. And, and uh, for me, it was a very useful sermon. Uh, but I also appreciate uh, what Nate revealed about himself to us, uh, that he's a fan of the movie for Rambo First Blood. <laughs> I could just see Nate, Nate sitting you know, in front of his TV, just glued to Rambo and Sylvester Stallone. And, <laughs> Go, Rambo! <laughs> so, sometimes you learn things you don't really care to learn, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Psalm 22. I've got a picture I'd like to show you, if you guys can bring it up. Ah, good. This is Agnes. She lives in Nigeria. Uh, In 2018, she was kidnapped, along with uh, several other Christian schoolgirls, by the terrorist group Boko Haram. Uh, She was not part of that kidnapping that we all heard about back in 2014, but Boko Haram, this is something that they do. It's a way for them to make money by charging ransom. So she was kidnapped along with several others. Uh, And she managed to escape about two years later. And she said this about her experience. She said, we suffered a lot during our time in captivity. They forced us to work hard for them. They kept pushing us to denounce Christ. I was given to a woman who was married to one of the fighters. In secret, the woman, woman was still a Christian. She told me that during times of Muslim prayer, I should pray to Christ instead of Allah. I suffered a lot of violence at at their hands, especially when I sometimes still mention the name Jesus. A few times they beat me up until I was unconscious. In the book of Psalms, there's a verse that says something like, no matter the troubles and suffering you go through, hold on to God. Now, she might have prayed something like this on more than one occasion. Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. That's what David prayed. And then there are, uh, as Randy already mentioned, and we don't need really any reminding of it, there are believers in Ukraine today who are suffering, who are dealing with uh, this war that, uh, that shouldn't be happening. And I've heard stories of churches uh, helping one another and helping others to find food and to find shelter and to hide and, in many cases, to flee. But I wonder what the believers there are praying. And I, I, Maybe even today, maybe even as we're speaking, they might be saying things, My God, I cry, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. David prayed that. Now, whether Agnes or the believers in Ukraine actually lifted up those specific words, We do know that David did, and we know that several hundred years after David, this psalm, Jesus Christ did when he said on the cross, my my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, from a Bible student perspective, Psalm 22 is fascinating. It's a prayer by David over some desperate circumstances he is in. We don't know what those are. He is feeling left alone, and he calls himself a worm, and he's not in a good place for most of the psalm. And yet, while it's a psalm of lament, it's also a psalm of trust. 
David places all of his trust in the Lord and calls on people to praise God. But beyond that, several of the passages in Psalm 22 are messianic. Now, when we say a passage is messianic, an Old Testament passage is messianic, we're saying that the passage describes uh, something about the life and acts of Jesus. Sometimes a passage is obviously messianic, like Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That's the verse that Herod's uh, minions uh, came up with to be able to communicate with the wise men where Jesus would be born. So some passages like that are obviously messianic. Some are not so clear. But the way we know that a passage is messianic in those cases is because the New Testament writer applies that Old Testament passage to Jesus Christ, like Matthew 27:46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're a Jew living in the first decades of that first century, it's not likely that you would have associated verses in Psalm 22 with the Messiah. But with Matthew's application of these passages to Christ's crucifixion, it's clear that they're messianic, and they certainly have application for us. Psalm 22 is largely messianic, but it is also the life-sized cry of David. So let's read uh, Psalm 22 through verse 21. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. By the way, when I get to heaven, that's one of the questions I'm going to ask. What is the tune, doe of the dawn? I want to know. It sounds like a great tune. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. <coughs> Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In your fathers, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind, and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Let's pray. 
Father God, in this psalm, we see David in anguish. We see him in terror and pain. And we recognize, Father, that this is the time that David was seeking you and, for a time at least, not hearing you. But at the same time, he declares his trust in you. Father, may we, when we go through these kinds of things, may we, Lord, when we are suffering, may we cry out to you. But may we all also recognize, Father, that you are there and that you do hear and that you're worthy of our trust. And help us, Father, to see Jesus today in this too. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at David's perspective of this psalm, and then I want to look at Jesus's perspective of this psalm. And as we look at David, uh, I want to first look at how David describes his relationship with God in the psalm. I want to look how David describes his condition. I want to look at what David knows about God, and finally, by looking at David's praise of God. Okay, Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 11. David says, where is God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And then verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So David looks around. He believes God has abandoned him. He says that God doesn't hear him when he prays. And he prays day and night, but there's no answer. And he cannot find any rest or comfort from God. He says there's no help to be found. The word for rest in Hebrew can also be translated silence. God is silent, as far as David can see. I remember time early in my Christian life where it seemed my prayers were hitting the ceiling and falling back down to the floor. And that's how I described it to a friend. It seemed that God had lost interest in me. And he lost interest in me during a time where I really needed him. And I expect that most of you have had a similar experience. David, a man after God's, uh, a man after God's own heart, felt abandoned by God. So that's his question. Where's, where is God? And then he talks about his condition. Verses 6 through 8 and then verses 12 through 18. He says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then 12 through 18. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Have you ever thought of yourself as a worm? I suppose that happens mostly, and and David certainly describes it this way, that when you're mocked, when you're made fun of, when people cause pain by deriding you, when you're ridiculed for your faith, 
I can remember time as well in my life when I tried to witness to my faith to my stepfather. He was not a particularly pleasant person. And I can't repeat here what he said to me. Suffice to say, though, it was awful and it was profane and it made me feel terrible. And as I think about it, like a worm. Describing himself as a worm describes the internal heart and emotional state of David. He adds to that by speaking about the people around him as lions waiting to devour him. Sounds like they're laughing, mockingly laughing at him. Sounds like they're perhaps even moments away from killing him. And then he describes his physical condition. He has no strength. He's thirsty beyond measure. He is so withered he could count his bones. It seemed to him that his heart was ready to stop or to burst. Now, we don't know what experience in his life that David is writing about. Perhaps one of the times he was running from Saul. But whatever his experience, he was near death, or at least it felt like that. And in fact, and this I find remarkable, he says that God has put him in the dust of death. David is in deep, life-threatening trouble. But he knows God. Verses 3 through 5, 9 and 10, and then 19 through 21. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. But you, O Lord, don't be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. So David knows God. And right after crying, for example, that God had abandoned him, David says in verses 3 and 4 that God is holy. And he reminds himself that Israel's history is full of examples where David, as David says, our fathers trusted in God and found their trust vindicated. And right after David calls himself a worm and suffers at the, at the cruel, and mock, cruel mocking of his enemies, he says that from birth he has trusted God to be cared for and, for, and more than that, from birth he has been close, in close relationship with God, trusting him his whole life. And right after saying his enemies have surrounded him and that they've pierced him, that he is next to death, David declares his trust in God, praying for deliverance. He trusts God to defeat the lions and the dogs who are ready to do away with him. David remembers that God had delivered him before. God has delivered. God will deliver. And then it goes on. David praises God. Verses 22 through 31. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hid his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat in worship. Before him shall bow, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told to, of the Lord's of the Lord to, to the coming generation, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. As difficult as this psalm is to, to read and as difficult as it is to grasp David's um, agony, the largest portion of the psalm is not given to his cry of abandonment or to the pain or the anguish that he's suffering. The largest portion of the psalm is given to praise in the exaltation of the Lord. Now, for David, deliverance hasn't happened yet. But he vows to tell God's people of his deliverance and then calls on God's people to praise him. David notes that God has not abandoned the afflicted. He said earlier that God had abandoned him. That he does not hide from him, but but God hears them. And this after crying to God, as I said, that he felt abandoned and not heard. Knowing who God is trumps our feelings and our circumstances. And David looks toward a time when all God's people will look to God and will glorify him. David acknowledges that God is sovereign. And perhaps most astonishing, David says that even those who die, who go down to the dust, as he says, the very place that David said that God had put him, even those will worship God. This last passage in the psalm talks of praising God. It talks of how the afflicted will be delivered and vindicated. It calls to worship God. It calls to remember what God has done. It asserts that the praise of God will be told to people not yet born. And that future generations will praise him because, as David says, he has done it. And in the same psalm where David believes God has left him and that God does not answer him, David declares that God is with his people. And that he does not, that he does hear, and that he does deliver. What explains this contradiction, this seeming contradiction? It is true that while we're in trouble or pain, our focus gets narrowed on the circumstances or on the pain. When you're in deep pain, for example, it's hard to think of much else but the pain. It's hard to believe that God is with you or hears you in such times. Now, I can't testify to anything that I would call overwhelming pain in my life. I can't testify to anything that somebody might call dire circumstances, at least not in the way David does. But there was about a four-week time in my life where I had a severe case of sciatica. And if you know what sciatica is, you know that it's very painful. And it was very painful for me. And the pain was so bad, it was so bad that I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand, and I couldn't even sit without excruciating pain. Nancy will tell you that uh, she thought I was just using an excuse to stay in bed all day and watch television. I couldn't go to work at my desk for more than a couple of minutes. And even eating was difficult because I had to sit up to eat. At one point during this time, I had to drive myself to the doctor, and I was weeping because of the pain. I don't want to ever experience anything like that again. And I do remember thinking, where was God? 
or I remember thinking, why isn't he hearing me? And here I was, useless to my family. I was useless to my employer. I was useless to ministry. I was useless even to God because I could do nothing for anything more than a few minutes. Where was God? Why was God not hearing me? Well, God did hear me, and he didn't abandon me. During the time, it didn't feel that way, but he never did. And he did heal me, as is obvious. (laughs) But he healed me in a way that you probably don't think. Uh, Maybe someday I'll tell you that story, too. And I did praise him. So that's how David looks at David's perspective of this psalm. But, of course, there's another perspective, and that's the perspective of Jesus. I would suggest that this psalm gives us a look at the Messiah as he was being crucified. Now, each of the Gospels records the crucifixion, and each of the Gospels cover more or less the same material. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but as you read the Gospel narratives of the crucifixion, they're largely matter-of-fact. John adds a bit more. But the gospel record simply speaks of one thing and then another thing. Here's the first thing that happened. Here's the second thing that happened. Here's the third thing that happened, and so on. Little description is given to the terror and to the anguish and the pain, both physical and emotional, of the crucifixion. Let's look at Matthew's account. Matthew 27, and as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put a charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he can't save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Well, I'm sure you recognize several passages in the psalm are directly quoted or alluded to by Matthew. And with those passages in mind, we can begin to see much of the psalm can be applied to Jesus' experience during the crucifixion. And it brings out some of the anguish and the terror and the pain of the crucifixion. And as we look at the following passages, try to imagine 
them describing what Jesus was going through. Verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Starting the Thursday night when Jesus was arrested, Jesus had been dragged from place to place. He was mocked, he was beaten, he was tried, he was flogged, and crucified in a process that, process that took close to 15 hours until he died. Can you hear Jesus groaning on the cross in those words? Can you understand that Jesus wonders why God is not answering him? Probably the most devastating aspect of the crucifixion for Jesus was that, for a time, God looked away from Jesus, having placed the sin of the world on him. Verses 6 through 8. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's not only that God had turned his back on Jesus. and It was not only the physical pain, which was certainly great. It was that the people were mocking him while on the cross. Crucifixion was just not physical torture. It was humiliating for many reasons. And yes, Jesus was God incarnate. Yes, he was fully God. But he was also human. The agony of the cross was intensified by the mocking of the people around him. No wonder he felt like a worm. Verses 12 and 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. The crucifixion was certainly a physical trial, but it was also a spiritual one. Aside from God forsaking Jesus, the phrase bulls of Bashan carries a lot of theological weight for Jews of Jesus' day. Bashan was known as the Old Testament version of the gates of hell. Bashan was associated with the realm of the dead, and it was known at, outside the Bible, the place of the serpent. The image in these verses is of demonic powers seeking to devour, to kill the Son of God, to kill the Messiah thinking that would put an end to God's plan. And it seems for a time that the, the, the demonic was winning. These bulls of Bashan had their mouths open like a lion waiting to devour. First Peter 5.8 says, Satan is called a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evil of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, verse 18 in that passage is the passage that's uh, the verse that's quoted by Matthew in his description of the crucifixion. But the rest of the passage describes a lot of the physical torture and pain. Jesus, uh, sorry, the physical torture and pain Jesus experienced. Perhaps as you read these verses, you can remember a time in your life when you were physically at your end. 
Perhaps you have some understanding of bones being out of joint. If you've ever had a separated shoulder, that's what that's referring to. By the way, that's a description of dislocations, which happens during a crucifixion. The arms, the shoulders, the arms get dislocated, making it even harder to breathe. Perhaps you've known a time when you've lost all your strength and felt as dry as a broken piece of pottery, which describes severe dehydration, also the result of crucifixion. Perhaps you've been, at some point, been able to count your bones due to an illness. Perhaps you felt your heart beating so hard that it felt like it was going to explode, which, by the way, is also common during crucifixions. The heart is working so hard to try and pump oxygen to the body that it, it pounds. And, of course, there's the piercing. These things describe 670 years before crucifixion was invented, physical torture of crucifixion. Psalm 22 helps us see what Jesus experienced on the cross, what he experienced for you and me. As much as Jesus experienced during the crucifixion, like David, Jesus could proclaim. Psalm 22, 27, and 28, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And then verses 30 and 31, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Jesus certainly has done it. A few things to consider. Now, if you have been, or if you are now, or if in the future you experience trial and trouble, and I think that covers everybody, and if it feels during that time that God has forsaken you, cry out to him and say so. David said so. Jesus said so. God's not offended by that. God's not upset by that. He knows. And if that's what you're experiencing, he's okay with you saying so. And while we get a glimpse of what Jesus experienced, we realize that we cannot know the depths of what he suffered for us. Even so, consider what you might not have realized before today regarding Jesus' suffering for you. Go back and read again Psalm 22 and consider what Jesus did, what he experienced in suffering for you. How does that deepen your gratefulness of his grace toward you? And as you consider that, please don't respond with guilt. Don't say, oh, Jesus, you've done so much for me. It's all my fault. My sin has put you on the cross. I'm so guilty. Don't do that. When your sins were wiped out on the cross, so was your guilt. Your guilt and your sin was wiped out by Jesus dying and by his resurrection. Rather than that, like David, praise him and tell others about what he has done for you. And then the message of Psalm 22 is that a believer can trust God no matter the circumstances, even if the circumstances include intense suffering and even the prospect of physical death. Psalm 22, 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he's not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried out to him. 
God loves you. God lives in you and with you by the Holy Spirit. God knows your suffering. He has not abandoned you. He does hear you. And you will be delivered.